0: Uh, well, you can have a seat. Uh, and good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith. I'm our college teaching director over at our Anderson campus, uh, but I love getting the chance to pop over and be with you guys every once in a while. Uh, I was uh, the youth director here at Southwood for a couple of years a while back. Man, it was, it was a good time. I have... Uh, one person who enjoyed my tenure, uh, so that's that's always encouraging to know that the Lord has planted those seeds and grown them the fruit. Uh, that that one that one fruit, but it's, it's good, it's there. Uh, I'm always excited to be with you guys because I, I always love just sort of bringing people in to, to see kind of what we've been learning and, and growing in, in in college in our college services, and it's actually been right parallel alongside of y'all as you've been walking through Matthew, we've been walking through Mark, and so uh, I've gotten the chance to basically. Basically, uh, kind of cross paths right there, and, and we're going to look at, at a passage. We're going to look at a story, at a moment that is recorded in multiple gospels because it is incredibly important. It's the, it's the moment where Simon Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. But to get there, uh, first of all, we all kind of need to find some common ground, uh, which is found in this right here. The line is baked in a buttery, flaky crust. Baked on a buttery fl- crust. It's close. Baked in a buttery, flavored crust. Baked in a buttery, flavored crust. Uh, crust. Yeah. Baked in a buttery, flaky crust. Baked in a buttery, flaky, flaky flaky crust. Here we go. Here we go. Baked in a buttery, crispy crust. Flaky. I left flaky out again. Baked in a buttery, uh, crispy crust. Flaky! I thought I said flaky. You should have had me do that. Oh, yeah, she does that good. Baked in a buttery flaky. Baked in a buttery. flaky, flaky crust. Back. Baked in a baked. Oops. <laughs> baked in a buttery crispy flake. <laughs> baked in a buttery flaky crust. <laughs> Yahoo! Man. Sometimes it is just hard to call something what it is, right? Sometimes it's it's difficult to know that it's a buttery flaky crust because you got cameras on you, right? There's a high pressure situation. Uh, maybe it's kind of the words run together. I, I get it. It's it's hard to call things what they are in certain circumstances. Sometimes it's hard for us to say, you know what, that report card or that job performance, that is actually what I deserve. Like that's what I have earned for myself because it's it's requiring us to really accept reality for what it is. It's often hard hard for us to confess the truth about something because many times it even has consequences in our life. It, it can mean that we're moving forward into something that's more difficult or something that we don't want to necessarily accept, right? It's hard for us to admit and confess, hey, that relationship is fractured. Because the consequence of that confession is I have to now move into it and and change things, or I need to be differently, or I need to seek forgiveness, or I I just have to walk away because it's it's completely falling apart. It's hard for us to confess that, man, that dream that I had, that aspiration, is no longer possible. Why? Because the consequence of that confession is, well... I have to find a new path or I need to find a new aspiration or a new dream or I need to live differently or make different decisions to move towards uh, some other point on the horizon. It's hard for us to confess, man, that, that this decision that I made back there uh, that seemed so great at the time was actually a terrible mistake and has led me to this horrific point. Because that means that I have to admit fault and failure. It means I have to probably seek forgiveness from other people or I need to find better counsel for future decisions. I mean, it, it can be really difficult for us to call something what it is, it can be hard for us to confess the truth because many times that confession holds difficult consequences. See, the world looks at Jesus of Nazareth and it will call him a good man, or maybe a good teacher. But when the word of God looks at Jesus of Nazareth, it calls him the Christ. Okay, literally in the Greek, he's the Christos, the chosen one. He's the Messiah, the, the Messiah who moved into creation to bring the dead to life. When we look at Jesus of Nazareth in our scripture, we see that he's not some unknowable entity or some distant divinity. We see that he is actually the God who became flesh to live among us and know us intimately. When we look at Jesus of Nazareth in scripture, we see a record of his life recorded in the gospels. And throughout it, what we see is he is the Christ. He is the chosen one. And and more spectacularly than that, he chooses us to join him. He has chosen us to actually join him in life beyond the grave. So when we look at the life of Jesus of Nazareth, when we look at this king who came to live and die and rise again, we find a truth of who he is that holds dramatic consequences for all of our lives. This morning as we read Matthew 16, what we'll see is is a question essentially lead to a confession. And that confession will actually generate difficult, incredibly difficult consequences for all of Jesus' disciples, for all of his followers. Because it was true back then and it's true now that if we are accepting Jesus as the Christ, it means that we are accepting a God who calls us to abandon self-satisfaction and self-determination for the struggles of self-sacrifice and self-denial. That's the consequence of our confession. And it's not fun. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse 13, we see that Jesus has pulled away with his followers to the area of Caesarea Philippi. And he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now this is a significant area, right? He's pulled to Caesarea Philippi. They're, They're probably on the outskirts of the region. And it's significant because Caesarea Philippi was the home of a very famous temple that had been built to honor Caesar, the ruler of the Roman Empire. And it was a temple that people would go to and where they would confess that Caesar is Lord. That was a requirement given to all the conquered nations that Rome would overtake. If you were a conquered people, Rome would come to you and they'd say, okay, you can pretty much do most of the stuff that you've already done. You just need to pay a tax to us, right, to keep things going, to keep the roads paved and the soldiers marching. And you also have to add Caesar into your list of gods. You have to see him as a god. Among men. And so they would go to these temples built around the empire and they would confess Caesar as Lord. So on the outskirts of this region, where where people are going and confessing that Caesar was in fact God, that Caesar was in fact Lord, uh, Jesus has called together his disciples. And this is a significant time in his ministry, because this is all he has. He has sort of a core group of followers, because at this point he's been ministering for a few years, performing signs and wonders, and he had amassed this incredible crowd. He had this name that went forth, and people would come from far and wide to see him. And as much as they loved his miracles and as much as they loved his healings, man, they hated what he was preaching alongside of his actions. They hated what he was saying alongside of what he was doing. And so these crowds that had at one point massed around him, they had fallen away. They didn't like his message of sacrifice and denial and death and suffering. They didn't like that. In fact, at this point, he's even been abandoned by his family. The people of Galilee, his hometown, they they had fallen away. They'd said, "Man, you're saying crazy stuff. We don't buy it. You need to stop." He'd been abandoned by his fans. He'd been abandoned by his family. All he had left was this dedicated core group of followers, his disciples. And so he pulls them aside in this in this region where people are calling Caesar Lord, and he says, "Hey, who do people say that I am?" Right? Who do people say that the Son of Man is this term, this title that he had adopted for himself, that he calls himself many, 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 many times over the course of the Gospels? Because he's, he's pointing to uh, the fact that he is human, right? It, 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 it signifies his humanity, but it also signifies his divinity, the fact that he is the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7, the one who would descend from the clouds and establish an eternal kingdom. He says, who do people say the Son of Man, who do people say that I am? So his disciples, they look at him and they say, well, here's the thing. It's kind of a mixed bag, right? Some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets, so when we're getting kind of the pulse, he's like, ear to the ground, ask the audience, like, what what do they say? Like, let's poll 1,000 Jews and see, like, what do they say? What are they saying about me? Who do they say that I am? They're like, well, some people think you're John the Baptist, resurrected. Probably everyone knew that John the Baptist had been killed. He'd been beheaded at this point, but they think that maybe he had been resurrected. Uh, some people think, well, uh, maybe you're Elijah. Maybe you're the one prophesied who would come in the spirit of Elijah to pave the way for the Messiah right? That's, we look back, we say, well, no, that was John the Baptist. At that time they thought, well, maybe John the Baptist wasn't it because he's dead. So they're like, well, so maybe it's this Jesus guy. Some people think he's Jeremiah. That one's really great because Jeremiah essentially was sort of a, uh, he was a prophet. And he was really kind of a bummer. Like he was just sort of a bummer guy. Like if you were hanging out with him, you just sort of walk away of like, oh gosh, I need to not hang out with him because he was called the weeping prophet. He was very critical of the nation of Israel. God used him very powerfully uh, to write two books of, uh, of our Bible. But man, he, he was just sort of a downer and he was very critical about the nation of Israel. He would, uh, he would attach authority with suffering and people just kind of hurt him that no one really liked him when he was around. And so when people see Jesus kind of talking along those same kind of bummer lines, like, man, what is this, like Jeremiah again? Like they think maybe Jeremiah's come back, darn it, to to talk to the nation of Israel. Like, I don't know, people think you're prophet, well, whatever. And so then Jesus hears that. He's like, okay, great, but, but who do you say that I am? What do you say? What's your conviction? What would you confess? And he's actually speaking to the group of disciples. This is a plural you. This is a y'all. It's like, well, what do y'all think? Howdy. Like that, that's kind of implied, uh, the howdy that is. Uh, but he's saying, who who do y'all say that I am? And so Simon Peter, uh, kind of true to his nature. He's the first one to kind of step up and speak. And so he says, Hey, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. So in speaking for the group of gathered disciples, he steps forward, he says, you're the Christ, you are the Christos, you are the chosen one, you are the Messiah, you're the Savior, who's been foretold. But he adds to it, he says, not only that, not only are you this Messiah, not only are you this chosen one, but you are in fact the son of the living God. Meaning you are the one who inherits all of the Lord's power and authority, his, his attributes. In other words, he's saying, you are God. You're of the same nature of God. You are God. You're the chosen one, but, but you're God. Man, this is an incredible confession. This is an incredible truth to proclaim. And, And it's in a very quiet moment, right? Significant that it's in this moment where they've been rejected, where they're on the outskirts of civilization. It's not in the middle of some big, awesome miracle, some kind of camp high moment because they'd had some of those confessions. When Jesus calmed the water, the disciples thought they were going to die in a boat. And Jesus like, calms the water. He's like, no, chill out. And he calms the water. And that moment, earlier in Matthew, they look at him like, oh, truly, you're the son of God. Because, yeah, I mean, it was this big, uh, bombastic moment. And yet right here, it's this quiet, kind of discouraging time. And yet even then, they say, you know what? I, I've seen you through years. I've listened to you teach. I, I've watched you walk. I, I, I see who you are and what you've done. And I have to confess. I have to admit. I have to proclaim the truth that you are the Christ, that you are the Son of God. So, man, Jesus hears this, and, and he's, he's moved, man. I, I can't help but imagine that his, his heart was just warmed by this confession. Because he looks at Peter, and he says, you are blessed. It says, "Oh, you're blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, He did." He says, "Peter, you've been given this incredible gift." of knowledge, of wisdom, to to know this, to proclaim this. He says this is something that you couldn't have arrived at on. your. You're just flesh and blood. You're just son of Jonah. He's literally just saying you're you're a son of a guy. Some translations would say it's it's Simon uh, Bar-Jonah because that's literally just the transliteration of the Hebrew, son of Jonah. He says you are just a man, and yet here you are proclaiming this incredible, divine, otherworldly truth. And that's true of any of us. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have been given a gift. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is only an unmerited favor. It's only the gift of God that that allows us to see this truth for what it is. To see Jesus Christ for who he is. God says, you can't come about this wisdom on your own. Paul says that the wisdom of God, it's folly to the world. That the world will try to get there with its own wisdom. He says, you just can't do it. It says, but God has, has graciously given us this wisdom. He's given us the gift of this knowledge to recognize that Jesus Christ is, is the foundation of our lives. He's our cornerstone, where for others, he's just a stumbling block. People will trip over him unless they are given the gift of knowledge from God to say, no, he's, he's it. Jesus of Nazareth was not just a good man. He was not just a good teacher. He is in fact, the Christ. Jesus hears this confession and he says, man, you got it. But then he goes on and he says, yeah, now now that you've confessed and now that I've accepted that confession, I'm going to lay out for you some consequences of holding to that truth. He says, I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Okay, now he's about to launch into some consequences, and they're very loaded passages, so we're going to walk um, kind of almost word for word uh, through these passages, and we're seeing first and foremost that that he's talking about this rock, okay, and this is uh, uh, an interpretive question and issue that very godly men and women will land in kind of multiple camps as to what exactly this rock is referring to, as to who exactly this rock is referring to. Uh, I'd say that through time and study, uh, I align with a lot of evangelical, uh, biblical theologians, and they'll say, you know, when we look at this, it seems to be indicating uh, he's talking about essentially himself. He's saying that I, Jesus, the fact that he is the Christ, that is the rock upon which the church is built, upon which we all stand. This lines up with kind of Old Testament prophecies and Old, old Testament kind of uh, illustrations of the Messiah. It lines up with passages like Isaiah 28, where he's looking across time, he's prophesying, he says, God is speaking, and he says, look, I'm laying a stone in Zion, an approved stone, that's set in place as a precious cornerstone for the foundation. And the one who maintains his faith will not panic. In other words, God is saying there will be one who comes, or will be a Messiah who's been promised. There's this chosen one that's coming, and, and he's going to be this rock. He's going to be this cornerstone that's going to establish a foundation for all of my people. And anyone who places their faith on that, anyone who's resting on that foundation, they're not going to panic. They won't be shaken because it's a true and, and firm foundation. He says this is what we're looking for. This is who we're looking for. It's this Messiah, this this cornerstone. Jesus is also, he's using this kind of word usage, this word play that points to himself, where essentially when, when he's talking about Peter and this rock, he's using in the Greek as, it, as it's recorded, inspired by the Spirit, in the Greek it's recorded in two separate terms. He says, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Okay, so two distinct terms used to describe stones. The first one, Petros, that's, that's like a, a rock that you might find in your yard. My, my little daughter, uh, she's just over two years old. Her name is Charlotte, and she's wonderful, and she loves rocks. Man, she just... Just adores rocks. Uh, God bless her, uh, because she will go out into our yard, we, in our flower beds that are uh, devoid of flowers but full of rocks. Uh, she will go and find it. She'll pick up rocks. She'll be, like, dad, 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 rock, rock. I'm like, oh, that's so good. Yes. And she will take it and she'll put it in a bucket and she'll find more rocks. She'll rock, rock. And I'm like, well, actually it's a Petros, but you know, good try. And she will put them slowly but surely into this bucket. I'll then take the bucket. Then she dumps the bucket on the driveway. Um, and then I have to put them back in the garden. It's great. It's a symbiotic relationship circle of life. Uh, but... <laughs> Every time she's finding those rocks, that, that's what the petros is. It's this stone. It's the idea of a stone that you would find and pick up and put in your pocket or throw at a bird. I don't know. <laughs> but you uh, would use these, this idea of petros as this stone. And then he switches to Petra, where it essentially that's not necessarily this rock that I pick up and put in my pocket. A, pet, a Petra is this big, immovable boulder, or you go to a quarry and it's just a big old rock. You're like... Now that is a Petra. Like that's great. There might even be like an 80s hair metal band named that. I don't know. But there's, it's this idea of this giant rock, this Petra. And so Jesus is saying, look, you are this stone and upon this Petra, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Right, and he specifically, he's using wordplay, right? This is a fantastic moment in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Every dad should look across time and space and say, well done. Yes, tis well with my soul to see that, to see that hor- horrible, horrible pun. That's great. Affirmation from the Lord. Keep at it, dads. Uh, of which I am one. But we see this idea that, man, he's using these terminologies. He's talking about other people being stones. He says, you're the stone. And and again, this is terminology. This is language that we see repeated throughout Scripture. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2. He talks about us being stones, Jesus being the rock. Jesus calls himself the rock again in Matthew 21, uh, as this rock upon which we all stand. Paul uses the exact same terminology in 1 Corinthians 3 of Jesus being this rock. And, And not only is it used to describe the Messiah, or Jesus using it to describe himself, but we actually see it used in the Old Testament to describe just God, God the Father. Psalmists, like in Psalm 18, will say that the Lord is, Lord is my high ridge. He's my stronghold, my deliverer. My God is my rocky summit. He's where I take shelter and my shield, the horn that saves me. He's my refuge. So it would naturally follow that if Peter had just stepped forth and say, Jesus, you, you're the Christ, but more than that, you are God that then Jesus would use this, this illustration, this common illustration of a rock being, of the Lord being this rock, to then describe himself. He's affirming the confession. But as I said, he's about to lay out then the consequences that come from that. But before we get too much further, I, I feel like we have to ask. I have to ask myself. You need to ask yourself, is that something that I hold to? Is that a confession that I would make? Is that a faith that maybe I've just sort of been handed, that I've maybe kind of carried along with me because there's nothing better offered yet? Or is that a truth that I hold to? Is that a faith that I would affirm? Is that something that, that I just, I clutch close to my heart? Is that a confession that I would make? If so, Jesus says, look, I'm going to take all of these people, I'm going to take all these people that make that confession, that believe what you believe, and I'm going to build this church. I'm going to build this, literally in the Greek, this ekklesia which just means an assembly of people, a gathering of people. It's used for lots of other gatherings of people, not just uh, Christian congregations. It's used to describe lots of gatherings or, or, or assemblies of people. He says, but I'm going to make this sort of new assembly, right? It's significant. He's on the outskirts of civilization. He's been abandoned by the crowds and he's with his disciples on this kind of long trek, difficult trek to Jerusalem. And, and he's saying, look, this is going to be your new normal. Essentially He's saying, this is kind of going to be life for you now is that if you confess this truth, if you hold to this belief, you are going to be a part of this new assembly that's built on this new rock. And and you're going to be apart from from the authorities, the the civil authorities or the religious authorities that you're used to. You're going to be kind of set apart. You're going to be different. And you're going to live differently and you're going to speak differently. You're going to believe differently. Since you're going to be new and, and just so very, very different. And that's what they did. I mean, when we look through scripture, as he, after Jesus dies and, and rises, after he then ascends into heaven, we see his people, his assemblies begin to gather in these new little in homes spread across their communities and in the, in their, in their cities, and in, in they're gathering to, to worship Christ, man to serve Him, to live as He told them to live, to be His hands and feet in this world while He's preparing a place for them in heaven. We see this lived out, and we don't just see people going into these separate assemblies. We see them then becoming a part of this greater, amazing mystery that is the universal church. That's what Paul alludes to. He says, man, it's incredible that we would look at Christians and recognize that we're not just a part of isolated assemblies that in fact everyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ as their Savior every single person is now adopted out of sin and death and into the family of God and you are a brother and you are a sister in Christ that's true if you are in College Station or Dallas or Wichita or Asia, wherever he says every single one of you now belong to this new body, this new church church And that's an incredible thing to gather around. Man, Peter uses that terminology, as I said, 1 Peter 2. He says, you yourselves, you're like living stones. He's trying to paint this picture for these new believers. He says, you're you're like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. He says, not literally houses, but but in a spiritual sense, you're being built up to be this new priesthood, this set apart priesthood to offer sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says, you're becoming this new people and you're like little stones that are being built on top of each other, but all of you are resting. He goes on to say, you're all resting on this foundation that is Jesus Christ. And this is an incredible opportunity because we as people, man, we will gather around something. It's just part of our nature. We want to clump. Like, we want to find other people with the same desire, interest, or focus. We want to all focus around something. And sometimes, man, we will gather around the strangest things. That is the craziest thing I've ever seen. Turkeys walking in a circle around a dead cat in the middle of the road. What? Bro, this is wild. Wild. That's us, man. That's us. <laughs> Bro. Wild. <laughs> but this is us. This is really it. Like, we can look back in our lives. You probably don't have to look that far. You might look to, like, yesterday. Not even 15 years ago. Could be two days ago. And you recognize, you know what? There are certain things in my life that I spend a lot of time or energy or thought or conversation or friendships or relationships. There are a lot of things that I kind of centered around. And it was maybe a a, a career trajectory or maybe I kind of really gathered myself and other people around uh, a a sports team or, or some sort of pursuit or some sort of accomplishment or some sort of title or some sort of relationship. And we've gathered ourselves around these things and we focus and maybe we find other people that are like-minded that we're all just kind of walking around it. And and yet the reality is that even in our broken understanding of the world, there are already things, I guarantee you, that you can look back and say, oh, yeah, that was was a dead cat. (laughs) That was something that I now look back and I'm like, that was pretty inconsequential or that was something that didn't quite bring the fulfillment and satisfaction that I thought it would. Or, or that was something that, you know, a couple days later, somebody just came by with a shovel and it's gone now. Like it's not even there. Jesus knows, I mean, we have a tendency, we have an ability to just start circling up around dead cats in this world. And sometimes we see it. Sometimes we don't, but he says, I've got something better. For you, he says, I have an even better purpose. I have an, ever, an even better foundation. I have something so much better that you can center your life around, your relationships around, your conversations around. He says it's me. He says you can center your life on me, and that's going to be a, a centering. That's a foundation where you're not going to panic, right? It's a foundation where you're not going to be shaken. It's a foundation that is going to last forever. It brings a purpose and a a motivation that that transcends anything this broken world has to offer. He says, this is what you can be a part of. You can be a part of this new people that center on this new purpose. But are we? This is an incredibly convicting passage for me. Because I look at that and I'm like, gosh, there's... There are just other things that I center my time and thought and energy and conversation and life around. I'm a full time employee of a church. And but I find so many other things other than Jesus Christ. You know we've been given an opportunity to, to center on something that's so incredible. And Jesus says, and when, when those people are there, I man, when those people are a part of that when, that, when that focus happens, he says, something incredible occurs. He says, this is a people that cannot be overcome by the gates of Hades. In other words, he's talking about the power of death, right? The gates were this symbol, this place of power and authority. Uh, Hades was this, another, those kind of the Greek terminology used for Sheol was just this, this idea of life after death. It's just the, kind of the, the area of death. He says, in the power of death, the gates of death, the, power, the gates of Hades, they're not going to be able to overcome my people. And that is a powerful statement. That's something that should embolden us. Right? That's something that should get us moving. Like we should just sort of internally or externally just like read that and be like, well, whoop. Like, yeah, that's good. And yet so many times we hear that and we believe it, but yet it doesn't really bleed out into our everyday lives. And yet we still find ourselves neglecting the spirit of power and authority and strength and boldness that we've been given. And we favor instead kind of our, our intrinsic nature, our intrinsic spirit to, to kind of maybe shrink away and not want to rock the boat where we see opportunities, maybe in our workplace or in our classrooms or maybe even just some of our relationships to to maybe lean in and and have a spiritual conversation and maybe ask some meaningful questions and maybe answer some questions that they might have or just kind of start a dialogue about meaningful God matters. And yet when we see the opportunity, we have a tendency, we can have that tendency to just sort of uh, pull away and leave that for someone else. And we think, man, maybe if I can just, I'll just sort of live in a certain way, and that'll be my witness, and people just kind of know that, like, I'm nice and good, and, and somehow God's going to work that to, to where they can come to faith. I mean, yeah, our, our actions, oh, man, they matter. We have an opportunity to be witnesses, lights on a hill, salt in the earth. Those are those terms for us, but, but our words matter as well. When Jesus was leaving his disciples, he told them, hey, you need to go to the ends of the earth. And he didn't just say, go out there and then just be nice or or live well or do your work. He says, go out and and share the gospel. He says, proclaim what you've been told, like teach what you've been taught. Does he need to go and tell people, have the gospel ready on your lips to share with those around you this incredible truth? This lifeline in the midst of death and darkness and destruction. He says, you've got to be ready to talk to people about this. And you can be emboldened because no matter what's thrown at you, it can't overcome you. He says, this world, you don't have to fear it because I've already overcome it. Death is no longer holding power over you. If God is for us, I mean, who could possibly stand against us? He says, I want you to be emboldened. I want you to go forth. I want you to share the things that have been shared with you. He says, man, as you do that, what's incredible is that you will have an opportunity to wield the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. He says, essentially, I'm giving you authority not to heaven itself. Or this isn't a setup uh, for the kind of other churchy dad joke of St. Peter was sitting at the gate and up came two penguins. And, you know, like that's not... That's not the correct interpretation of this passage. He's not saying, I'm giving you keys to heaven. He says, I'm giving you keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's it's an important distinction. Because essentially what he's saying is, I'm giving you kind of authority to open the door of faith for others. And we see Peter fulfill this charge. We see him in in, in Acts 2 opening the door of faith to the Jews at Pentecost. We see him in Acts 8 opening the door of faith to the Samaritans who had always been neglected before then. We see him in Acts 10 opening the door of faith to the Gentiles. But what's important is that we don't just see Peter living that out. In fact, Jesus talks about the keys of the kingdom being given to all of his disciples in Matthew 18. And in fact, when I talk about the door of faith being opened, this is biblical terminology. Those used to describe Paul's work. In Acts 14, he had gone and he had done these cool stuff. And in his report, he says, look, I've opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. In other words, we're using those keys that God has given us. In other words, we are using the opportunity to to open up this door that people might come to believe, that people might come to be a part of this new assembly, this ecclesia that's built upon the truth that Jesus is the Christ. So again, our question for ourselves has to be, are are we doing that? Are we a part of that? Are we opening the door for people? We recognize absolutely that this is the work of the Spirit, right? We're saved by grace through faith. In Jesus Christ. The, the work of the Spirit has, is, is ultimately responsible. The work of the Spirit is in the midst of people coming to faith, but yet somehow, mysteriously, God allows us to be a part of that process. He allows us to be in the mix. So are we seizing that opportunity? Are we stepping forward in faith to open the door of faith for the people around us? Are we boldly stepping out and willing to proclaim and confess, you know what? Jesus is the Christ. He is the way, and the truth, and the light. He says, "As you're a part of this, right? he says, as you as you're moving forward, and as you're kind of using these keys and, and sharing this truth, he says you're going to be a part of this other process that's that's binding on earth. What's have been what will have been bound in heaven, and what you release on earth will have already been released in heaven." The translation here is very particular because the Greek it is very very particular in saying that. You are binding and loosing or binding and releasing things that have already been bound or released. In other words, it's using terminology that was used by religious leaders at that time of essentially restricting and allowing different behaviors or customs or practices. And he says, if you're moving around and you're telling people about me, you're confessing this truth to others. He says, you're going to be a part of a process of also enacting the Lord's will on earth. It's the Lord's prayer. God, I want your kingdom to be here on earth. God, I want your will to be enacted here on earth, just as it is in heaven. God, I want your will to be done right here. He says, that's what you can be a part of. But you need to recognize that it's, it's the flow of authority is from heaven to earth. It's not that man's will is being accomplished in heaven. It's that God's will is being accomplished on earth. You can't just decide to go up to a speed limit sign and, and maybe tweak it a little bit uh, from your 30-mile-an-hour speed limit in your neighborhood, that you're like, well, that's not enough, and you change it to 80. You know, if you get pulled over by a police officer, which I hope you do, that's incredibly irresponsible, but if there is a police officer that pulls you over, that's not going to hold up in court, right? You can't just bring that to the judge and be like, well, look, I changed it. <laughs> oh, okay, well, never mind. Like, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> this is not how authority flows, You can't just walk into your professor's room and look at the syllabus and say, oh, there's a group project on here? Uh, No. No longer shall it be. (laughs) Behold, (laughs) I mark it out. Tis no more. Like, you can't do that. You have to recognize, you know, authority flows in one direction in certain contexts. Jesus is saying, you are following the authority of the Lord. You're going to enact his will here on earth. And yet, many times I find myself seeking to enact my will, right? I I still find myself wanting to change that speed limit sign or mark out that line on the syllabus. I find myself wanting to maybe seek out my own desires and maybe kind of establish my own little kingdom with kids that behave in a certain way or friends that look a certain way or a salary that looks a certain number. And there's certain things that I want to kind of construct around myself. And I say, this is the will that must be done. When Jesus has told us no, like there's so much, there's so much more. There's something so much better. If we're confessing Jesus as the Christ, the consequence is twofold. We have that new people, right? We have that ecclesia. We have this new family, but we also have a new purpose. We have a new direction. We have a new will to enact around us. So where are you at? if we were really honest with ourselves and with the Lord as we go to him in prayer in just a moment, let's admit, God, this is what I'm, this is what I'm struggling with. God, I'm just kind of stuck on that belief. Or or God, I I just, I I feel like I, I still am just not quite focused on you. I'm not quite gathering around you. I've got these competing Issues or, or desires God I, I feel like maybe I'm still just timid Lord I'm just I'm afraid to, to kind of Cause disturbance Lord, Lord I'm, I'm afraid of, of Inviting people to faith Lord I don't have those relationships I don't have a platform to proclaim the truth from Or God I, I feel like I'm, I'm still stuck On my desires and my will Be done rather than yours Man I don't I don't know where you're at right now and the reality is, you're just going to kind of bounce around. We all are just going to kind of bounce around in those for all of existence. And yet, God, being rich in mercy, says, I- I'm going to work with you. It doesn't disqualify you from my love, it doesn't lessen my love in any way. But I do want to work with you in stepping forward and in- moving forward and in- changing you to be more like Jesus Christ. So we have an opportunity right now to go to the Lord and say, God, Let's get, let's get working. God, I want to be moldable. God, I I want you to work and, and change me. God, just show me where it needs to happen. So let's do that right now. God, we thank you that you've shown us, Lord, a perfect example of a life lived on this earth through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that it's not just an example that you've told us to, to figure it out and and go and, and, and make it happen, but that, Lord, that you have promised us your spirit. That, Lord, the Holy Spirit has been given to every believer as, as a counselor, as a helper, as a guide, as a source of motivation for that change that we so desperately need. So, Lord, we thank you that we can stand assured of our salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. But, Lord, we ask that as we stand in that, in that beautiful spot of, of being saved from sin and death, Lord, we pray that we would continue to move forward. That, God, you, we would continue to be a part of your work on this earth. So if you would take a moment right now and just ask the Lord, God, show me where is it? Where is it that I'm I'm missing the side effects? Where is it that I'm missing the consequences of my confession that Jesus is Lord? That Jesus is the Christ. God, draw that to my mind, convict me of that, that struggle. But then, Lord, let your spirit guide me forward. Go, Lord, show me what's my next step. What can I do today or tomorrow or this week? Lord, to just move forward in that process of sanctification to becoming more and more like you. Ask him those things right now.